This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley, and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits, revisiting our series, The Political Editors, which we brought you earlier this year. This is episode three with Sir Peter Riddle, a veteran of Westminster politics who became Times political editor in 1991. I don't think that other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. It is time to put up or shut up. A new dawn has broken, as in This is a decisive moment for the world economy. Now the decision has been made to leave, we need to find the best way. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I have been repeatedly assured that there was no party. Growth, growth and growth. Some mistakes were made. Half a century of politics told by the people who wrote the first draft of history for The Times. This is The Political Editors. On this episode, Sir Peter Riddle, who replaced Robin Oakley in 1991, recalling the dramatic end of the Thatcher era, underestimating John Major and Labour coming back from the wilderness. I had a couple of blokes on my team who were in there. I was standing outside, Thatcher comes out and comes up to me and said, Mr Riddle, you didn't ask your usual question this morning, you know, as if I'd missed school. He always lacked self-confidence, he'd never been to university, surrounded by all these brilliant people who went to university, to which the only answer is, look at what you achieved. Tony Blair in the 90s was conveying a, a sense of excitement. Now, some of it, one could view as slightly shallow in some respects, some of it was, but there was a sense of change. Peter Riddle, welcome to Times Radio. Um, you replaced Robin Oakley as political editor of the Times in 1991, but not for very long. Tell us what happened. Oh, essentially, my period as writing about politics is divided in two parts. One for the Financial Times, uh, which I did basically up till 1991, and then from 1991 to 2010. But I wasn't really the, a political editor in the conventional sense 
of being the chief news correspondent because I'd done that on the FT and when I was hired by the Times I was really being chief political commentator so there was a playing around of titles that didn't really matter Phil Webster was in charge of news for the period when Robin Oakley left I was the chief commentator doing analysis and so on and actually you the two of you rubbed together we'll hear from Phil later in the series but two of you rubbed together for quite a long time doing that absolutely we did it well, effectively, for the best part of that period, let's say 18 years of doing it together, until I um, retired from the Times and did lots of other things in 2010, after the 2010 election. We'll come on to those other things a bit later on. Just take, Let's go back to 1991 when you took over. Yeah. Tory party, change leader, economic crises and infighting, Labour Party on the march, they're about to win the general election. That was interesting. I'd come back from the States. I've been in the States for three years my last job on the FT, and that's where I was hired from. In fact, by my later editor, uh, Peter Stoddard, who, who was my opposite number in, in Washington. And um, I came back uh, in the autumn of 91, and the things looked rather good for Neil Kinnock. I'd known John Major well in his rise, um, but he'd become, and I'd talked to him once or twice when he became Prime Minister, but it did look as if he was fighting an up, uphill battle. But then we had the election in the spring of 1992 when the polls got it wrong, and they got it badly wrong. They underestimated Major. And the interesting thing about Major is, is even though he got a narrow majority in seats, uh, in terms of vote, he got a, one of the highest votes the Tories have had. Um, I think more, actually more votes than anyone ever in yeah. a general election. And the famous thing in the election was... It was the kind of doggy John Major. He was on his soapbox and people derided it. But it went down well with the public. Huddling up to the Liberals for support is like leaning on candy floss. <laughs> Not a chance of much support from that particular quarter. And at the same time, people still had doubts about Labour. That Neil Kinnock had done a lot to change Labour, but the election results showed he hadn't done enough. And he immediately stepped down. And so it, it, it was a very strange period because when Major won, you thought, this is a real triumph for him. But immediately everything went sour because of Europe, yeah. inevitably. And the battles over what became the Maastricht Treaty, which one doesn't want to talk about too much um, <laughs> from the listener's point of view, but that dominated politics for the following 18 yeah. months. But you know, immediately the gloss went over his extraordinary election victory. Coming from America back into British mm-hmm. politics, did you have a different perspective on what was happening? Could you see that John Major stood a better chance of winning than maybe people right in the thick of the bubble might have thought? Not really, because I think that, one, I'd kept in close touch. Um, I remember the, uh, I was with the elder Bush in Paris at the time Thatcher fell. And I remember going to a press conference at the, at the British Embassy, which where Bernard Ingham was, and chatting to Bernard about her chances. Within two days, she announced her resignation. And so... One of the interesting things was explaining to American friends how we could do this. You know, how, uh, remember, this is in the middle of a war, the, the first Gulf War. Everyone yeah. thinks of the Iraq War, but you've got to remember the original one, the, the invasion of Kuwait and the expulsion very successfully and so on. And uh, at that period, you know, Thatcher, who'd been at some distance from Bush, so it was quite an interesting perspective being in Washington, a very interesting perspective, actually. But the, they'd come together again because of the Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait. But they couldn't believe that, how could you get rid of a successful prime minister? And as always, people overseas don't necessarily get the right perspective on what's happening domestically. Yeah. And that's one of the things. I was in a slightly unusual position because I still kept in touch with yeah. people. British politicians coming through Washington always wanted to gossip with me. And so I kept in touch in a way. So I was less detached than I might otherwise have been. And what about John Major as a person? Because there's a whole generation of people now where the sort of the two-dimensional view of John Major is it's the grey man, his shirt tucked into his pants, eating peas. But 
you don't get to be in quite quick succession, uh, Foreign Secretary, Chancellor, and then Prime Minister, and then win a general election, mm-hmm. without being a pretty astute politician. Oh, he was extremely astute. He's one of the most impressive politicians I knew, but he lacks self-confidence. He always lacks self-confidence because he's never been to university. And he'll, I've argued with him. I, I see him occasionally because we're both Surrey cricket fans, so I, I, I took, more likely to talk to him about cricket than politics. But he's still has that feeling, look, I didn't go to university, surrounded by all these brilliant people who went to university, to which the only answer is, look at what you achieved. Yeah. And it's complete rubbish. I mean, interesting enough, some of the top Mandarin civil servants regard him as one of the sharpest and cleverest prime ministers and the most painstaking at doing things. But he had that doubt. It, all the time as prime minister, he had doubt. And also he was affected by a, a bitterly divided Conservative yeah. Party, which didn't help. But no, he was a, a much cooler... Also, calculating person, he was one of the most adept handlers of the press during his rise. If you asked, I mean, everyone focuses on Teddy Blair, Peter Mandelson, and Gordon Brown, but if you looked at someone who was a single person, on his own, without any entourage, cultivated the press during the 80s and 90s, it was him. He picked out some younger political journalists, he cultivated us, and it was a very smart move. He was actually a much smarter operator than people gave him credit for, but he was beset by an impossible party. Yeah. Talk about the 1992 election. What are the standout moments of that election campaign was the Sheffield rally. This is the Labour Party. This is the party that's going to win the election and win for our country. Yeah, I mean, that was what I... I wasn't there. I watched it on TV, and I thought, Bit, bit over the top. It jarred at the time, and it's convenient to look back on that and say that was the reason. But if you look at the gap in votes, I think it was people weren't yet ready for Labour. They were worried about, at a time of recession, remember, this was not a strong economic time. Yeah. Um, it was a time of recession, house price collapse, interesting parallels with around now, and so on. And that people didn't feel safe with Labour for all that Neil Kinnock had done over a period of nine years. It wasn't quite enough. And were all the seeds of that sown, essentially, in the 70s, when you first started, when you were at the FT and your economics correspondent, and you had Wilson and then Jim Callaghan and all the economic problems there? Was that still the hangover, what, 10, 12 years later? I think there was, there was some hangover, as well as, of course, the, the switch to the left under Michael Foote yeah. in the early 80s. Um, the famous Labour manifesto in 83, the longest suicide note in history, as it was described. And there have been longer ones since then, of course. But the, that <laughs> sense of Labour being out of touch with reality, uh, and it was just a slow climb back. I mean, it, it took well, three general elections to get yeah. back from the low point of 83. And Neil Connick did an awful lot to save Labour, very bravely and, and so on. But no, it was a legacy of the winter of discontent in 78-79, the, you know, the famous rubbish on the streets, all that stuff, combined, of course, with the enormous impact of Thatcher. I mean, you know, she was a force of nature, one, certainly one of the most remarkable people I've ever covered as a journalist. Did you feel, because she was there for such a long time yeah. and you were political mm-hmm. at the FT at the time, do you feel you got to know her? Was she someone who cultivated you like others did? No, that's a very interesting point, Matt. She did cultivate editors and kind of her sympathetic economists. She knew us all, it, unlike other leaders. I mean, for example, later on, John Major, uh, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, um, to some extent with David Cameron, who were more contemporary, or indeed younger in Cameron's case, whom you could have a proper conversation with. With Thatcher, it was the headmistress's presence. And what a policy! Yes, he would rather have the poor poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That is a liberal policy! My favourite story of that was in the 87 election. I'd stayed behind, there were then daily press conferences, which 
aspect of During the election campaign, every morning, every, morning, every party uh, had a weekday, round Smith Square in Westminster, the parties, starting off with the Libs, Trump Lib Dem Democrats, very early, then you'd be Labour, then you'd be the Tories. And so you moved from one to the other. And I'd stayed at Labour to talk to Neil Kinnock about something. And, I, and the Tory press conference room was full. That didn't matter because I had a couple of blokes on my team who were in there. I was standing outside, Thatcher comes out with Norman Tebbett, her party chairman, and comes up to me and said, Mr. Riddle, you didn't ask your usual question this morning, you know, as if I'd missed school. And <laughs> I said, no, I, was, I explained what I've been doing. And she wanted to know what Neil Kinnock had said. So we had a conversation. Then she said, you want to know what happened at my press conference, which was a completely absurd thing <laughs> given I had someone there. Norman Tebbett was standing behind her because remember, Mr. Thatcher wasn't that, that tall. Uh, was trying to stop laughing at this absurd thing and she was waving her hand very thatcher it, it was the headmistress instructing you know that was her relationship and so you never got that close to her but she was quite accessible in the sense of press conferences but they tend to be rather gladiatorial no yeah. harm in that but that that was her style and that's why bernard ingham who, who died earlier this year was such an important figure because he was very much the interpreter he wasn't a crony of Thatcher. People misjudge that. He was below stairs. If you think of it as Downton Abbey or upstairs, downstairs for the older listeners, he was a kind of buckler. As, he, a, pre as a press secretary, he was the yeah, one communicator, running up and down the stairs. Yeah, running up and down the stairs, very accurately interpreting her will. Yeah. And he was very much personal to her. I mean, he was devoted to her. You talked about John Major having self-doubt and that partly, you know, carrying him through. Do you think, in that period of recovering Thatcher... I mean, but certainly by the end, she wasn't someone that by self-doubt. In fact, it was probably a bit overconfidence that played a part in that. Was that as a result of her being there for so long? Yes. I mean, I think being there so long, I mean, a lot of people felt that, you know, she should have gone after 10 years, that going on for 11 and a half she did was just too long. And she was isolated. The bunker was there. I mean, everyone I've talked to, and uh, both at the time and subsequently said, look, she just got isolated in there. Uh, you know, she'd lost Geoffrey Howe or Nigel Lawson first, the Chancellor. Yeah. All right, she'd been distanced from them, but they were the pillars of early Thatcherism as successive chances exchequer. So losing them and other ministers, William Whitelaw was no longer around. He'd had a stroke, who'd been very much the person who, who, who supported her and helped her along on things. So she was isolated. And, and I, I only saw this at the, right at the end because I was in the States. But you saw that sometimes her judgment was a bit strange. I mean, the end of the Cold War, which had been a great objective, she was very opposed to immediate unification. I remember being in Washington. American people, even ones who knew Britain pretty well, I say, what the hell's going on with you people? Well, this has been an objective, yet she's kicking up trouble over it. And as I say, it was only the Gulf War which brought Bush and her together. Well, let me uh, first welcome Prime Minister Thatcher back to the United States. It's a very timely visit. This is The Political Editors, episode three with Sir Peter Riddle. Coming up, how similar is Keir Starmer to Tony Blair? How the job of political editor has changed over the years? And whether Peter has enjoyed being on the other side, working in public office and answering rather than asking journalist questions. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is part three of the political editors speaking to Sir Peter Riddle. So you were still out at the Times, but you weren't political editor. Yeah, you yeah. were chief political commentator. Yeah. What a period to have been covering from 92 when, when Labour lost the election, the death of John Smith mm. in 94, the rise of new Labour. Today, people say, oh, the mood around Keir Starmer and Labour is nothing like what it was mm. in that period in the mid-90s. What was it actually like in the mid-90s to be covering it? It was, I mean, obviously there are some similarities. You had a divided party. I mean, you know, drawing parallels between Margaret Thatcher and Boris Johnson might appear very bizarre. <laughs> but there was a sense of the, the king-queen over the water. During the major years, you had still people who felt she'd been betrayed and so on. Even though I, my view is just the passage of time and you know, she'd lost her touch. And there are now people who think Boris Johnson was betrayed. So there's a parallel. I mean, one shouldn't take it too far. Very different. Very, yeah. very different personalities. Very different levels of achievement. But there's that aspect of it. You've got a, a divided government, one which is hitting problems with house prices. I mean, John Major had in, in his favour that after the immediate economic problems after uh, 1992, the economy was recovering. Um, living standards were rising. But it, it, was, a, it was a kind of uh, voteless recovery. Yeah. Um, here, living standards are being squeezed. It's much harder. With, with Labour, remember that it took a long time for Labour to, to recover from its 83. I mean, essentially, it's 14 years. Yeah. What, what Keir Starmer's tried to do is in four to five years from a pretty low base. So there are similarities. There are similarities in the ruthlessness in which they're trying to get the right candidates in place. It lacks some of the buzz. I mean, you know, Keir Starmer, who's a talented, able man, doesn't have some of the pizzazz that Tony Blair had at his peak. Please welcome the Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Tony Blair. <laughs> what do you succeed in doing, Tony Blair, in the 90s, really up till the 97 election, was conveying a, a sense of excitement. Now, some of it one could view as slightly shallow in some respects. Some of it was carefully orchestrated in media terms. But there was a sense of change around. I mean, it was quite clear by the mid-90s there was practically no way the Tories could win that election. So it, there is a different feel, however much the polls are similar. It's not quite the same as then. I wanted to ask you about how the job of being a political mm-hmm. journalist has changed. Mm-hmm. Because, well, in 1991, you become political at the Times. Well, you could 
go out for a great big long lunch and come back and write one story at tea time and that was you you done and dusted these days you'd be flat out morning live blogs and emails and twitter and rolling news channels can, can i push it back <laughs> a, a, 10 years before that okay because i think that gives the contrast yeah when i started there were three tv channels there was no breakfast tv there was no sky tim berners lee was a, a, a you know um, a bright spark but not yet the internet mobile phones uh, oh. um, people had clunky uh, phones in cars so the news cycle was you know, as you imply, you wrote for a story for the evening main edition, say, 7 o'clock or something. Well, interesting, interesting enough, you also wrote for later editions. I yeah. mean, I quite often, in my 1980s period as a political journalist, would be rewriting for the second edition. News would come in late. Parliament also sat late. I mean, yeah. there's no family-friendly hours. I mean, you were, you were quite frequently during the week, it would be till 10, 11 o'clock. I mean, I'm single then, probably fortunately for my relationships and later family life. You worked late, which also had a great advantage. You got to know politicians much better. Yeah. I mean, I got to know them much better than I think a lot of people do now because you really did rub shoulders with them in the evening. But that, as we say, has all changed. The technological changes have made a massive impact. Um, there's much, many of them are, are strong pluses. There's much more transparency. There's more openness. However, it does also make it more instant. Judgment has to be instant. You can't reflect. You can't go around and talk to two or three people. Which You know, I, I would be talking to several people wander around Parliament, wander around the lobby, be on the phone, but I didn't have to reach a judgment mm. within five minutes. It's interesting what you say, though, about how you'd think that technology, WhatsApp, Twitter, has increased connectivity. Mm. But because they're less human relationships, mm. your understanding and knowledge of what's going on is probably less. It can be less. And since the curse of life is the breaking news phenomenon the belief that something new is more significant it isn't always and i think that's a i mean the inevitable problem when you've got 24-hour news or you look at twitter you could say well actually what is the most significant thing when i started out it was possible to establish significance and proportion there were downsides it was a very closed world yeah was a heavily male world i mean you know i had had um, on the FT two deputies who were women. One went went on to be the um, Channel Four political editor, Alan Goodman. And that was slightly unusual in what was a mainly middle-aged, quite tight world. And when some of the criticisms made of the lobby now appears to be slightly ludicrous because it was a closed world then, but it was just opened up by 24-hour news and everything we've seen since then. Yeah. So there were pluses and minuses, but it did allow more time for reflection. Also, the sense of we must run with the thing because it's on Twitter. And, and Twitter consumes itself, I think. I should ask you about what you did after you left the Times mm. in 2010. Mm. You've become a great ornament of state. You've <laughs> been a public appointments commissioner. You've been on all sorts of committees and public bodies. Yeah, well, what happened was, towards the end of my time on the Times, I felt, um, I, I was being squeezed a bit. Um, generational, too. I mean, it goes back to politicians. You, you, your time runs out. And I thought, well, my time was running out. There's a new think tank called the Institute for Government being established. I'd be the first person to write about it, actually. And I happened to bump into the research director, and I said, how's it going? He said, well, we're looking around for research fellows. And I pointed to myself. I said, he said, we'd love to have you. And as I negotiated a, a, a deal working two days a week for the Institute for Government for my last 18 months on the Times, and three days a week on the Times. I also, the most extraordinary thing of all, my last day on the Times, I got a phone call from the late Jeremy Hayward, who was then Permanent Secretary at Number 10, saying, we're setting up an inquiry into detainees and rendition, which mm. is Guantanamo and all that. We'd like you to serve on it. I said, what? 
I was just packing up my stuff that day. And um, being Jeremy, I said, how long have I got to think about it? He said, now. I well, that's a good thing to do. And it was the most extraordinary thing. And I also got a time over that weekend, they made me a Privy Councillor, which much amused my Times colleagues. I remember they, they th- when it was announced in the comments the following Tuesday, they thought it was very funny. Probably quite right. But it, so I had that. Then I became director of the Institute for Government, ran it for four years, four and a half years. And then I wanted to move on, and the position of Public Appointments Commissioner came up. So I applied for that, got it, and that was fascinating. I mean, I really, I mean, I'm extremely fortunate to have done totally different things in my 60s and early 70s. But I re- to get another perspective on things. I mean, you know, I, I realised my time as a journalist was coming to an end. I really enjoyed it. People say, oh, don't, you know, which you prefer. You don't. It's not like that. You do one thing, you enjoy it, and then you do something else, enjoy it. Did, given that there's nothing political journalists love more than sitting around and pontificating on what mm. politicians should be doing or government departments mm. or, oh, they want to be doing this, or if only yeah, I was... Yeah. Uh, when you find yourself in those positions, do political journalists know better? Uh, no, i tell you what, the interesting thing is... Well, two things. One, having been in the game, uh, I was probably more discreet um, because I knew <laughs> when not to talk. So I fortunately never got myself too much trouble on that, much the annoyance of some old friends. I often find if, if any journalist becomes a senior spin, you know, spin doctor or something, they're, they're always the worst. I know, exactly. I mean, they I, won't I, speak at all. No, the, actual, no the, the, the answer is political journalists, with all their contacts, on the whole get the direction right. They know which direction the submarine's going in, but they're not, on the whole, on the outside, they don't always get the exact timing right. But on things I was involved in quite closely... On the whole, they got the fact there was a row. But they didn't always get the, the details of the row or when it would be resolved. Sometimes they're ahead of the game. You know, I was being phoned up and said, X is going to happen. And I knew perfectly well X was still two or three weeks away. Or that X had already happened. I suppose it's one of those things where the first draft of history is bound to be a bit rough and ready. Yeah, but, it, but it's, it's nonetheless not bad. Not bad. I mean, you know, on the whole, a lot of political journalists still very assiduous, hard-working... And you know, when there's a row, they're not they're generally not wrong. Peter, that feels like a good note to end it on. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on the political news on Times Radio. Pleasure. That was Sir Peter Riddle. In episode four, Philip Webster, the longest-serving political editor of the whole series, uncovering the rise and fall of New Labour. His episode and the entire series is available now wherever you're listening to this. But for now, from me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.